Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. have accessed entry 148.DE2402, certificate number 42401. Patty Boyd. I think one of the things that Futurelings may not know about you, that I keep stressing about you whenever I whenever I am asked to describe Ken Jennings, is the, is the body odor. No, 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 no. You smell like uh, fabric Fresh, softener, freshly laundered uh, honeysuckle. <laughs> you smell like uh, your wife does a good job doing your laundry. No, uh, is that you have a tremendous knowledge of music and popular culture. You are an avid consumer of rock and roll. And you know things even I don't. Like you, you continually surprise me. Like, oh, that guy played bass on the second Slint record or whatever. And I'm like, I, I don't, I even know those guys, and I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, no, I don't know. You're probably overstating it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, because I'm not a musician like yourself and have no talent whatsoever, I'm just. I would agree I'm, with that. I'm just. A, <laughs> I'm just a fan. But as a young person, I was a pretty hardcore music guy, and it was a big part of my identity. And a lot of that is feeling like you know the people. You know, yeah. you want to read the interview in Q Magazine or Spin Magazine and see what see what your bands are saying about the affairs of the day, and if they're making jokes about each other, do they get along, what are they really like? And did you start with the Beatles, like so many of us? Absolutely. Uh, because it was what my parents always had on around the house. There was a lot of kind of 70s California AM gold also, plenty of Carpenters and um, John Denver, right. Bread and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, once, if you're hearing Lennon McCartney songs and then you're hearing other stuff, you're like, oh, the Lennon McCartney songs are the better ones. There's something, <laughs> there's something to them, yeah. I saw somebody, I think I might have said this on the show, I was driving behind somebody the other day with a bumper sticker that said, The Beatles. And I was just thinking, wow, this guy is a fan of <laughs> the rock group, The Beatles. And he put it on his car. I'm going to check them out. The Beatles. <laughs> Can you imagine being, being so into The Beatles and feeling like, I need to show the world that I love The Beatles. Let you me get know, the like, sticker that says The Beatles. He just wants people to learn about The Beatles, to hear about them. I have, I've decided to listen to a few of the songs and see what's up. 
Did you listen to the Beatles in any particular order? I mean, were you, uh, we've talked before about how I think uh, kids today, as we like to call Uh, them, (laughs) kids today, uh, they only have one radio station. It's called the internet. Uh, You know, the genres that used to define music are now all sort of jumbled together, right? And you can listen to what's called classic radio and hear Black Sabbath and Blondie and Tom Petty uh, one after another, where those things would never have been played in the same ecosystem in their original time. It's like the only thing they have in common, they remind you of when you were in high school. Yeah, they're from a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But but young people, I think, have this kind of interesting connection to the popular music of the 20th century, which is that it all just sort of belongs together. You can listen to Elvis, and you can listen to Led Zeppelin, and you can listen to uh, the Bee Gees, and it all just sort of feels... All those differences are are gone. They're weirdly ecumenical about era as well. Like some band will have some, some new band will put out some 80s inflected song that sounds like Crowded House or something. And the next track will clearly be Brian Wilson inspired. And the next track, you know, might have a guest rap on it. Like, I just remember being a kid and being so attuned to what was the new sound and what was the old sound. Right. And being a little embarrassed that I liked my parents' oldies station. Um, but this and was today what, that's all gone. This was what was so amazing about the Beatles is that there was new sound and old sound within the same band. And it could be very confusing to listen to Love Me Do and then I Am the Walrus back to back because even though they were only separated by a half a dozen years or less, uh, they were worlds apart in terms of tone and time. I'm trying to think what... Because the Beatles have a lot of songs that kids react to. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, my kids loved Yellow Submarine. Sure. When they were very little. Maxwell Silver Hammer was yeah, you, a big influence. You like on, those Paul McCartney music hall? <laughs> well, the songs? One, especially the ones that involve serial killing. <laughs> <laughs> you like the ones that are stories. <laughs> Oblivio Vlada doesn't end with any murders at the, the pataphysical college. Rocky so. Raccoon. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of gunplay and yeah, hammer play. Uh I guess I feel like Abbey Road was the record I heard the most as a kid. So late period. Late period. But obviously, I think my, you know, my prototypical idea of a Beatles hit when I was five years old would have been the Ed Sullivan, I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Right. Which is the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And I guess I landed somewhere in the middle. Like today, I think Revolver is probably my favorite record. It's a great record. Because you, you kind of feel like they haven't gone into the White Album off the psychedelic cliff yet. They were still being instructed by other people to only put 10 songs on a record. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they're still clearly, you know, they're um, at least bouncing ideas off each other. They're not right. just showing up with finished songs that maybe the rest of the band doesn't even play on. Weirdly, I, I went into the Beatles uh, at their their earliest, right? I started listening to rock and roll music or whatever, the Beatles in their rockabilly genesis period and followed their career Sort of chronologically. You were very into Skiffle for a year. I was. I was (laughs) super, super into Rory Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. But I remember very distinctly watching their movie, A Hard Day's Night, as a, this is kind of early days of renting VCR, renting VHS tapes, renting VCRs, listen to me. (laughs) Renting VCRs. Sometimes, you know, you have to rent the VCR and then rent the tape to watch it. You get a VCR at the store. (laughs) Uh, no, my my mom was an early adopter of technology during this brief period in the 80s, and she had a Betamax, a brand new Betamax, which I was 
which I, you know, went to school and lorded over everybody for about three months as being the superior technology before I realized no one else had one. It was the superior technology. It was. And you could, I was jealous of the smaller tapes. We had VHS and I was kind of jealous of my Betamax friends. Well, I tried to make all of my VHS friends jealous, but it was uh, clear that VHS kids were trading tapes with each other and Kevin Horning's dad actually had a VHS like camera, recording camera. And I could not keep up. My beta machine got smaller and smaller. I had friends mind. with Betamax cameras even. Uh, well, later, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we we watched uh, A Hard Day's Night pretty early on in high school at one of those high school parties where you picked a movie and... And, uh, and somebody picked a black and white movie from 1964? Well, because we were, you know, we were rock fans and this felt like a... I think like it's a, great. I a just, rock thing to do. That just seems like better taste than high schoolers usually have. It was before most of us were really even aware that necking was an option. I think I was kind of a late bloomer and in a crowd of late bloomers, and it wasn't... You were still building shortwave radios. It, yeah, it wasn't until many years later that people started like to go off and neck while I was still there, nose pressed to the TV, going, Harold and Maude is the greatest movie ever. <laughs> My friends are all like, you suck. Well, you go make out, you're going to miss the end of Harold and Maude. <laughs> yeah, right. But Hard Day's Night blew me away, and most of my friends too, just blew us away. The spirit in that movie, the, the, the idea of Beatlemania and the fun, the quippy sort of uh, fraternity that they had. It's so ebullient and effervescent even today. The uh, world that they lived in as portrayed, you know, the stodgy Englishmen and the and their slightly older managers, you know, the guys in their 30s that were squiring them around. Rolling their eyes at the Beatles <laughs> antics and you're like, look how cool they are. They're so amazing. Those guys that wear hats are like all mad. But the... You really uh, do want to hang out with them. You do. Which, you want to uh, be them. Which you don't get from listening to records, you know? Like as much as I admire so many bands and records, I never think, man, I want to go hang out with these guys. But A Hard Day's Night really wants, you want to be in that fictionalized world. It, it's what turns the Beatles into something above and beyond, something no one else can ever be. Um, you know, when you watch that Bob Dylan documentary. The long Scorsese one? Yeah. The, no, no, no. The one that was filmed in its time. Um, oh, don't look back. Don't, don't look, look back. back. Bob Dylan is not someone you want to hang out with. He's a dick in the He's, whole movie. He's really, he's really lame and the world, and it's an amazing world that's portrayed within it. It's just too bad that Bob Dylan has to be in the You middle. just sympathize with the Life Magazine reporter. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> I absolutely did. Where it's just like, hey, guy's just asking a question, man. You know, like, it's his job. Just give him a break. What if instead of Don't Look Now, that movie was just called He's Really Lame? <laughs> he sucks so bad. But, uh, the, but the Beatles, that movie was made on such short notice, what in the middle of them at their peak making three records a year or whatever? Yeah, they took like a you know six weeks off from two tours and having to deliver ten new songs for the record to just like throw together this movie. That I mean, admittedly, Hard Day's Night doesn't end really well. I mean, the, it kind of peters out. I don't like that the concert stuff at the end reuses all the songs from earlier in the movie, although I can see why that's a device. I yeah. think in part it might be because they hadn't had time to write the second side of the album yet. And so there weren't 10 new songs right. because they were making a movie. It's, inc it's uh, I mean, it's incredible how much there is in there. But do you have a particular scene of Hard Day's Night that sticks in your head? Was there, was there something that, that struck you like a lightning bolt? I mean, everything on the train. 
I assume we're talking about the train. We're talking I, about I the know train. what the show is going to be about. We're talking about the train, yes. But I mean, okay, so so running away from the girls at the beginning. Paul McCartney in a, in a fake mustache. He's got a fake mustache. They keep popping up in yep. different situations. But there's more of that on the train. You know, they, uh, they start playing cards. And then I Should Have Known Better comes in. And we actually flash back and forward in time to the Beatles singing a song to them. Also, they're just sitting around playing cards. They're surrounded by adoring girls. They've just pissed off the guy who wants the window closed on the train, the stodgy old guy. He's a very stodgy guy. I ride this train regularly. He's probably- Twice a week. He's probably 40. (laughs) 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 He seemed a thousand years old But the mustache and all the smoking Uh, really makes- I ride this train regularly. Well, the scene that you're describing where the schoolgirls in their matching- British schoolgirl uniforms. uniforms are there and kind of and and chastely flirting with the band. At this point, Beatlemania is in full swing, but but the Beatles aren't very much older than the schoolgirls, right? They're right. you know twenty, and the girls are surprisingly chill. You know, the rest of them is full chill. of girls fainting and crying and wetting their pants, and these two are like, "Teehee, what if he comes over yeah. here?" Yeah, <laughs> pretty uh, pretty great. And I think maybe the confines of a train, right? You're you're meant to feel like, well. They don't have to chase them. They're right there. And the Beatles come and flirt with them. Yeah. Paul comes over and says, excuse me, excuse me. I'd ask him myself, only I'm too shy. <laughs> but one of those two, uh, one of those two girls on the train was uh, just cast as a sort of non-speaking role, cute girl on a train. Cute girl number one. Uh, by the name of Patty Boyd. And she's very identifiable. She has a she has a blonde shag haircut, kind of half bouffant, half uh, bangs in her eyes, shag haircut. If you remember that scene in the movie, she's not the brunette with the with the short Vidal Sassoon haircut, who I'm kind of into. She's kind of the, the blonde Terry Gar looking one who's fun with the big smile. Yeah, I suppose this is one of the earliest uh, examples of like, are you a Vidal Sassoon girl on the train or a, or a blonde bouffant girl on the train? She's kind of got this wide-eyed Goldie Hawn baby doll quality. Very cute if that's what you're into. She does. A uh, big, big uh, gap in her front teeth, this sort of David Letterman-like gap. And I remember as a kid being, I mean, 13 years old and watching this scene and just being struck by lightning by this girl. Just feeling like, how could such a beauty actually walk the earth with with we mere mortals? And you were not the only rock star. I was not to think the, so. not the only rock star to think so. And no no less than George Harrison, uh, the one of the stars of our story here, along with Patty, uh, fell in love with her then at, during the filming of this movie. And this was at a time when, of course, they were. We think of them as sort of chased, uh, not chased, but, you know, th- these were goody two-shoes rockers. Right, and the, the rebel- I think I've said this on the Omnibus 4, their rebellions in the movie are things like not wanting to sit in a room and do their fan mail. They want to run out and go dancing. Or- John, John Lennon at one point cuts a, a tailor's tape measure, <laughs> and declares this bridge open, and we're like, oh, wow, what a rebel. They are late for rehearsal at one point, worrying, uh, what's his name, Victor Spinetti. But I think that the Beatles were, you know, were pretty prolific swordsmen. What would you call it? What, what is the term of art for a young person who is in the prime of their life? Having they uh, were womanizers. Well, they were they were willing, let's say, to uh, man whores. Yeah, okay, let's let's call them that. But so I mean, they could have mar- they, they. In they, fact, they were called the Fab Man Whore for short. 
<laughs> John was married, right? John was married. John's already but, married to Cynthia. But he kind of kept it a little bit of a secret on the down low. And I because the fans would have been angry. Yeah, angry if fans. One of them was off the market. But here Patty Boyd was so astonishing uh that George Harrison fell for her immediately and they commenced a relationship. And Patty was, you know, George was the sensitive one who at this point in time was not given a ton of credit or responsibility in the band that John and Paul didn't let him contribute his own songs until a little bit later. He was, he was marginalized as he, a creative He sang person. one song a record, despite being lead guitarist, he sang one song a record and did not write a song until, what, maybe Don't Bother Me on the right. next record? Right, it was, yeah, or was, yeah, was it Don't Bother Me? Maybe. Like the songs, at this point, the, the one song he would sing on every record was not even a George Harrison song. Yeah, it was just, they, they gave him a they gimme. Gave him the lame, and later that's what Ringo was for. And they, and you know, John and, and Paul both loved George, of course, but he was a little brother and they kind of, you know, they, uh, he was younger, younger and not, and not, and they still thought of him like, that's a big gap when you're 15 and he's 13. And so I think they still always thought of him that way, even when it was 51 and 49. (laughs) When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout but uh but so patty was there i mean like cynthia but but unlike cynthia in that she was there through the whole history of the Beatles as George's constant companion and was alongside him through all of the different sort of Beatles-like, I mean, we think of Yoko or Linda McCartney as being these muses and co-conspirators with John and Paul, but it was really Patty that... Yeah, Linda enters late. Much later. Paul's dating Jane Asher for years here. Uh, Maureen Starr comes later, but Patty is there for the whole... She sees the whole story. She goes to India... And uh, has the Maharishi times. She does the whole thing. And in fact, George writes a lot of songs about her. Which George Harrison songs would you say are about Patty Boyd? Well, the, uh, let's see, the ones that make it into the record as being sort of definitively about Patty are I Need You, Mm -hmm. which is a great George, early George Harrison composition. Got that chime in guitar. Um, If I Needed Someone. So wait, he said he needs her, but then he says if he needs her. Well, if he needed someone... I, I guess it goes Patty in that Boyd. order. Yeah, right. First, if I needed someone, and then... I need you, and if I needed someone. Then Love to You is about Patty. Love You Too. You Love Me Too, or Love to... I do, I do Love You Too, but the song is actually called Love You Too. Right, of course. Love You Too, by pa- about Patty, not by Patty. Although, that the, the record is unclear whether Patty ever like 
You did, think secretly, secretly said, she's writing all his songs? Well, she was in the other room and she was like, eight days a week. You shouldn't call it love to you. You should call it love, love you, you too. too. He's like, oh, it's, oh, be- it's oh, better. That's actually what you it's said. It's a bit better. Uh, but most famously, I think he wrote something about her. The greatest George Harrison song in some people's estimations. Frank Sinatra called it his favorite Lennon-McCartney song. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Covered like, by everybody. James Brown. I mean... Considering the number of me, considering the number of at bats George actually got, the fact that he wrote a top five Beatles song is pretty amazing. And here comes the sun. Like those are two great George Harrison songs. George is my favorite Beatle and always was, uh, for whatever reason. I am not like George in any way, but he was the Beatle that captivated my attention from the start. He's elusive. Even watching three hours of that Scorsese documentary about him, sometimes he's just the most spiritual, enlightened guy. The biggest heart will do anything for anybody. Sometimes he seems kind of mean-spirited and carries grudges. Well, He's, we, he's complicated. Patty has a lot to say about this uh, later on. But during this period, you know, she was in the style of the time, kind of a, a um, you know, a Sphinx-like character. She, she didn't have her own voice in the, in the Beatles story, right? She wasn't being interviewed quite the way that, uh, that Yoko later would be would make herself such a presence in the Beatles story to the consternation of a lot of people. Patty was a, was a more conventional companion for George. I mean, wives and girlfriends got marginalized in rock for, this was not unique to the mid sixties. This would go on for decades. Right. But Patty was never, uh, although she said later that obviously there were marital difficulties in any marriage situation, she wasn't abused. I mean, Cynthia ended up, being abused by John and and then he left her pretty unceremoniously and a young kid but Patty was the was George's love and and vice versa but in the late 60s George as part of his process of sort of breaking away from the Lennon McCartney you know the mother and father of Paul and John started hanging out on the scene and became good friends with Eric Clapton who, oh yeah the, the first guy to kind of guest on a on a Beatles record because uh, George brings him into play on Well My Guitar, well, Gently, Guitar Weeps. Gently Weeps. And and Clapton, very famous in the 60s as the best guitar player uh, in London at the time. Yardbirds, right? Yeah. And listening back to his playing in the context even of who was playing then, I've never understood how Clapton was so revered. I mean, he's a fine guitarist, a competent blues smith but there were a lot of other people doing more interesting work i never really found his playing very soul the graffiti said clapton is god like yeah. clearly to people there was him and then there was a huge gap and then there was everybody else and yeah. I, I also am not sure what the appeal is he it, was it's called not... slow hand because apparently his his hand hardly looked like it was moving while he's playing those fast licks that, and that's what it is right it's a is it, he's a technician? Is that what people are reacting to? I certainly hear that in his playing, the, some technical gift. But of all the people in the the history of American and British guitar playing, he's not the one that ever moved me. And I've spent years trying to figure out why Eric Clapton was God. But at this point in time, he was a very famous player and he's – he gives the impression of having been a kind of uncompromising young snob, which is really appealing to people in the music business, in in any kind of arts world. If you have a young, attractive, 
thin, yeah, confidence, confident rake who thinks that everybody else sucks and the only good music was made by like two guys in Alabama that you've that you've never even heard of. Like that's a <laughs> that's appealing, I think, to a lot of people. And Clapton gave certainly gave off that vibe. Insouciance. Insouciance. But as George and he became friends, and they really did have a, a an extra special bond somehow, the two of them uh, both pretty quiet. George looked up to Clapton. And, I, and George is often, as strange as it would be to say that any Beatle was underappreciated, we don't think of George Harrison as being in the rank, the top rank of lead guitar players. But of course, George has played some of the most famous guitar parts of all time. Yeah, those are famous. Maybe it's because there's fewer guitar, you know, Beatles songs are not guitar solo centric. Although there's but, always a guitar solo. There is, but it's verse, chorus, verse. You remember, and you remember that instead of the, and the solo is not acrobatic. It's, it's melodic. It's melodic. And you can always sing a George Harrison solo. Like you can hum it or whistle it. Or, I mean, it's, it tells a little melodic story. And because I grew up with that, I feel like kind of, that's my idea. Like I, I, I react very deeply to guitarists who do that kind of less showy solo. As opposed to reason. a meandering bluesy solo that kind of is in from one end to the other. You can't really follow a narrative. Yeah, or 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 any kind of technical, uh, you know, high degree of difficulty thing. Right. You know, I'd much rather just some simple thing where George is just doing these four notes. Well, it's like the uh, Hotel California being an example of an extremely long guitar solo, but which I would bet fully 50% of the people in yes. the world could just sing it all the way I through. I could just take a Simon right now and play that. Because that solo is really thought out and really melodic and tells a musical story in its notes. It's not just, it's not like a Metallica solo where it's just how many, how many unrelated notes can you put together into this space? And I know there are going to be futurelings in the distant past who have, formed a whole cult around around thr uh, thrash metal and <laughs> around the, the guitar solos of Metallica and they're all shaking their cages right now going no do not say bad words they've cloned Slayer and are going to send them back in time to murder you but during this period George and Eric form this bond and as you said George brought Eric in to play guitar on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which was not the first non-Beatle to play on a Beatles record, but definitely... The first featuring, the first guest, yeah. like we would say today. Yeah. The Beatles featuring Kendrick Lamar. Not somebody, you know, who's there to just uh, to play... Plenty of session musicians yeah. playing strings or whatever. George Martin plays the, uh, what sounds like the harpsichord part on In My Life. But nobody, nobody no names... Yeah, Clapton was the first sort of, uh, yeah, name, like Marquis name that had ever played with the Beatles. It was a real change for them and not maybe one that was entirely welcomed by everybody else. George later brought Billy Preston in to play oh, right. uh, keyboards on Let It Be. So George was trying to be the musician in the band, like the member of the musical fraternity, right? He was also the one that brought in the sitar. Like he was trying to establish a corner for himself in that intense pressure cooker. And that would have been actually unusual. And today it's commonplace for big name stars to guest on each other's records. But but at the time, you know, you wouldn't hear like Mick Jagger suddenly singing on somebody else's record or something. It was, no, it was much more unusual. common that you would cover a song by a different artist right. rather than guest on it. Although this began a period where 
you know, you had some monkeys and stones come in and sing on Let It Be or sing on uh, Hey Jude. Uh, hey Jude. The rock and the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. There started to be this kind of collaborative energy, and in fact, Patty Boyd also found herself in the studio with with the Beatles during this period singing. But George's relationship with Clapton, within their fast friendship, there was also kind of a, a, a side element to it, which was that Clapton, on first meeting Patty Boyd, apparently fell madly in love with her, couldn't bear the thought of Patty Boyd not immediately being with him from then on. Do we believe in this? Love at first sight? I mean, maybe he has a crush. Is he, he, he can tell. It was an intense crush that, that uh, almost immediately began to dominate Eric's life. And George and he were close, and I think it was fairly open within their friendship that Eric loved Patty and wanted Patty to leave George. And George was, I mean, they were all now experimenting with drugs and experimenting with all manner of kind of like, oh, it's all right with me if it's all right with you. But George kind of took it in stride and Patty did too. And I think they failed to understand how intense Eric, how intensely Eric felt about Patty. They just thought maybe this could be some standard 60s debauchery. Yeah, it sort of is what it is. Patty later on reflected back at it and felt like, you know, they were very competitive with one another, very macho sort of, sort of, um, George and Eric, uh, less George, but Eric was sort of macho white blues guy who had a tremendous competitive spirit with Eric and that he just wanted what, or I'm sorry, with George, he just wanted what George had is what Patty later, how Patty later characterized it. I mean, that's gotta be a big part of it. The forbidden fruit, like the one woman that Eric Clapton cannot get back to his hotel room, his best friend's wife. But it lasted for years. They met in the 60s and uh, George and Patty still pretty happily married with Eric coming by in the night and rapping on her window and saying like, leave him, leave him. And her saying, oh, you silly man, See, and this chasing would be, him This off. would be a strain on, on my marriage if I was in this situation. <laughs> George, George is not troubled. He's still friends with the guy. Like, I have to overlook the fact that you're trying to end my marriage. But except for that, we get along great. We play Scrabble. Well, Eric did even worse. At this point, he was getting into heroin. And at one point, he came by in the middle of the night and rapped on her window and held up a big bag of heroin and said, come away with me, leave George and come with me, or I'll do all this drugs. Oh, I thought it was a bonus. And, and, and I'll throw in have all this heroin. heroin. No, he was threatening her. Like, you know, the classic, I'll, like, be with me I'll, or I'll kill I'll myself. I'll jump off a bridge, yeah. But he was saying, you know, be with me or I'll do all this <laughs> that doesn't seem like heroin drugs. That's, that's less of a threat. Like, if you're like, if it's be with me or I'll do something awful and painful, but it's like, be with me or I'll just do this thing I really love, a heroin. Well, <laughs> like, what, what? Oh, no, don't throw me in that briar patch. <laughs> so she said no, you know, she said no, thank you. And at which point Eric commenced the four darkest years of his life where he became a... Oh, like, he was not a huge junkie at this time. He was not, uh, but he became a, like one of the most legendary junkies of the era. Well, he showed her. And Patty really felt responsible in this kind of, you know, this unfortunate sort of naive way that we have with drug addicts and also that she probably, I mean, she's like pretty overwhelmed by her whole life probably up to this point. And now this new scenario where, where 
maybe one of the more famous rock stars of the time, declares that if she won't love him, he'll become a famous junkie. And then it manifests. It must have been a lot. Uh, and it must cue, maybe accuse something maternal in her. He like was hoping. This little broken baby bird, like... But during this period, Clapton makes the Derek and the Dominoes record, Layla, which is about Patty Boyd, and sings to her through the radio his uh, dope-addled love for her. He chooses some name from a Persian love poem. Um, is it a, it's a disguise? I mean, everyone, he, everyone knows that... I mean, Layla's not a pet name for her or anything. No, but, no, no. But everyone knows it's coded. Yeah, he's trying to make their love into a, a, right. a great it's, epic it's, story. It's Romeo and Juliet or Tristan and Isolde. But Clapton writes some of his most famous songs from the era, including Bell Bottom Blues and Wonderful Tonight, which is, I mean, even as a Clapton doubter, as a Clapton skeptic as I am, Wonderful Tonight is a great song. It's just, it seems like an old standard. It's a... Yeah. Pop classic. And it's especially poignant when you when you think about it being written about Your his best, best friend's, friend's wife. wife. Yeah. At a certain point in the 70s, the culture of all of these drug-addled rock stars starts to come unraveled, if you can believe it. After four years of heroin, things <laughs> take a slightly dark turn. Uh, Ron Wood, or Ronnie Wood of, the, of, of the, Rolling the, the Rolling Stones and the faces before that, enters into the picture Ronnie was. Does he in, jump on stage with a with a with a cheeky watcha <laughs> like he like he used to when I was a kid <laughs> at every Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of a thing? <laughs> I think he's. I think then he maybe didn't have quite as much ale on the brain. He certainly had some, but uh, Ronnie was married to a woman by the name of Chrissy Finley, who later on became sort of uh, one of the legendary women who had notched off a certain number of rock stars on her bedpost. I mean... She was married to Ron. But she was it, married to but Ron in addition, Wood. both before and after, she was a collector. Uh, she said that she always claimed that she lost her virginity to Clapton. She was married to Ron starting in 1971. And then during this period, she had an affair with Harrison. And... Patty Boyd describes this time as George is getting into drugs. They're drifting apart. He's probably serially unfaithful because he has many opportunities. Well, I think I think this was during the that period sort of when Lennon's lost weekend when he left Yoko and went out and had this ma- relationship with May, May Pang. George and she had been in, in a pretty committed relationship, but George now on drugs was becoming unreachable to her and in a sort of strange way, they describe it as being not intentional. But George and Ron Wood's wife, Chrissy Finley, went on a a hideaway affair vacation to Portugal, and Ron and Patty Boyd took up residence together, you know, in some hotel on the edge of town. And the and, two, and this was never negotiated. It wasn't negotiated. Advance. It was not a pl- it was not planned. They just they were, had all been meeting for drinks or whatever. And, and uh, if two people pair off, I guess that just leaves two. But but I don't think I don't think they were aware that it was happening until they all reconvened. It's a hilarious like Noel Coward uh, <laughs> setup. Where have you guys been? <laughs> oh, you know we have to be honest. We've been sleeping together. Oh, what we have been doing? That's so crazy. 
Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com start uh chrissy finley after after this affair with harrison had a brief affair with john lennon and then uh, was, collect all four was in a relationship with jimmy page so, and this was not unusual for there to be these music fans who, you know, wanted to get as close as they could to all their favorites. So they would. No. I, I'm thinking of the story of, uh, you know, Liv Tyler grows up thinking that Todd Rundgren is her dad. And it's only when she sees a picture of Steven Tyler, she's like, oh, well, that solves that. Right. And it, tur- and it well, turns Well, no, out- he kept coming around. You know, he was always there <laughs> on Christmas morning. Hey guys, what's going on? And it's because her mom was, uh, you know, one of these groupie types who, you know, there's probably plenty of A-list rock star candidates who could have been her dad. There, uh, This story of Patty Boyd does not really, it doesn't trend into the groupie culture of the 70s and 80s, which, which was and is an entire subculture of rock music fans that on the sordid side is kind of emblematic of a, of a time that no longer exists. A lot of these girls were very young and were, you know... Potentially, like, prosecutably young? Yeah, very young. I mean, Jimmy Page uh, famously had a 13-year-old girlfriend for a long time. Ted Nugent actually adopted his girlfriend because she was too young, and he convinced her parents that he should be made her guardian. Like, Ted Nugent couldn't convince me to buy a gun. No. And yet, somehow, I'm always mystified by this story. It's a crazy story. And and a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, the people in this story, like Chrissy Finley lost her virginity to Clapton on her mother's couch when she was, yeah, 13, 14 years old. A lot of bad parents in and, this groupie culture. And she, Chrissy Finley is an interesting person that ties together this Clapton, Harrison, Ron Wood. Love Pentagon. Love with, with uh, so we're talking about Chrissy, Clapton, Ron Wood, Patty, and George Harrison. But at some point right here in the middle, Clapton cleans up, gets off drugs, comes to Patty and says, I'm clean now and I'm ready to begin a new chapter with you. And George has become disaffected, uh, diffuse drug. George was no stranger to heroin during this and he, part and of the 70s, living in the material world. According there, to uh, Patty, like cocaine did a job on George and sort of hardened him off. His voice just sounds awful on that third solo record, and you realize he's not doing well. And and George being the spiritual one of the Beatles, he had this thing that you're describing where he sometimes seemed like the most enlightened guru and other times was just a curled up ball of rage because of, well, I mean, nowadays we would have 
we would interrogate that pretty closely with a lot of uh, psychological ammo at our disposal. But back then, I mean, who? everybody was just trying to bury it under as much alcohol as they could find. Plus, the, whatever the childhood roots of it is, I mean, they're also all celebrities. Right. They've, they've for, nobody's told them no in over a decade, and that's got to be hard for your spiritual growth or the way you treat others. Well, Patty leaves George and takes up with Eric. And George is fine with it. Do you think he's fine with it or do you think he's like saving face fine with it? And Patty's fine with it and Eric's fine with it. George actually calls Eric his husband-in-law. Um, I've never known what to make of it, whether George was fine with it. I mean, Eric worked on dismantling their marriage for six straight years, but they continued to be... It's good to have a project, I guess. <laughs> continued to be great friends and collaborate with one another and socialize together. I mean, Patty just sort of started being with Eric and eventually married him. They, they did marry, right? Yeah, and they but they continued to... She and George continued to be close. All this stuff that's so alien to me, it's very easy for me to just be like, well, drugs, I guess. <laughs> because right. I, I don't know firsthand... I assume it changes a lot of social and emotional scenarios. It does, but also I, uh, if you are imagining that you are a generation that has finally dismantled and debunked the old patriarchal marriage and... and oh, the, the crock that is monogamy and yeah, family and... And you've, you've opened it all up and we all, we're all like above the petty... It's fixed now. Um, I don't see how you could then reconcile just your primitive feelings of jealousy and possessiveness and must be some cognitive dissonance desire in your I heart. I still feel like my wife shouldn't leave me and marry Eric Clapton, but, but at the same time I'm free. Right. That's what we always said, right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that all plays out, but Eric and Patty have then a conventional rock star musician wife relationship. Patty never toured with the Beatles or traveled with them, but now all of a sudden she's like the wife on tour with Eric as he is no longer a junkie, but now uh, he, he stopped doing heroin so he could really focus on his first love, alcohol. I thought you were going to say like <laughs> white nationalism. <laughs> no, that, 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 was a, that was more of a side thing for Eric. But no, he was then sort of the late 70s classic um, passing out drunk, mm. immediately off stage sort of alcoholic rock star that we see depicted in A Star is Born. Somebody that's wheeled on stage and plays weedly, weedly, weedly. And what's his pants? And what's his pants and is rolled off. So Patty becomes disillusioned. She felt like, oh, Eric was off heroin. This maybe, maybe this is the transition that I've been waiting for. But the rock star wife life became less and less gratifying for her. It's gotta be a hard life. And eventually she leaves Eric and oh, also, she reports he is violent with her in a way that George never was. And you can just feel in Clapton, in his music and in everything about him, a kind of coke rage. But one of the problems was that during her relationship with George, George often said, uh, when asked, George would claim that he was infertile because they weren't able to conceive. And George then, after Patty, had a son, Donnie, or I mean, you know, he, he. Yeah, he and Olivia have a son. He had children. 
Uh, and Patty was all, uh, you know, I think expressed some gratitude that George sort of uh, chivalrously claimed responsibility for them not having a child. But then with Eric, they actually actively tried to conceive and failed. And Eric was not very um, secretive about having affairs during his relationship with Patty Boyd. And at one point, he was uh, having kind of a long-term affair with an Italian actress by the name of Lori Del Santo. And Del Santo became pregnant. And Clapton came to Patty and reported this pregnancy. And according to Patty, did it uh, with the expectation that she would be happy for him because he was having a kid and wasn't that amazing. Like she, she said that Eric just didn't have a, I mean, I was his best friend in the world, but he didn't understand that we were married and that this was hurtful. I guess if you think of, if you think of the person with you as some kind of appendage or accessory, you're just thinking, well, obviously if I'm happy, let me, uh, let me share that with her. Right. Isn't this amazing, sweetie? I'm having a kid. So eventually Patty left Eric. Eric ended up with Lori DeSanto, Del Santo. And then tragically, of course, their son. Um, is, this is the son. This is the, uh, the son, Connor, who fell to his death from a building. This is our, our second defenestration right. episode. Eric wrote the song Tears in Heaven about him. So there's no, there's no shortage of tragedy in, in all of these people's lives. But then during Eric's sort of 80s, I mean, before the death of Connor, Eric and Patty, I mean, cause she left him before the baby was born. And then Connor was like four years old before he died. Mm -hmm. But during that period, Eric had a, had a couple of big hits, um, his eighties resurgence when he had this sort of techno, techno blues. And he wrote the song, She's Waiting, which was a, a hit for him on the radio about Patty Boyd and her, uh, sort of un, unsatisfied, unfulfilled life as the rock star's wife. Oh, yeah. You've been abusing her for far too long. Think you're a king and she's your pawn. It looks like he's figured it out, but a little too late. Yeah, he's uh, he's trying to um, get ready now because pretty soon you'll be gone and you'll be on your own. So he, he turns it around and becomes self-pitying in the <laughs> <Right>. end. <laughs> but mostly it's about me. Wouldn't you agree? Uh-huh. Yeah, and that was a, you know, Eric always spins spins straw into gold in his career. But Patty, thankfully, and this is, this is not always true of the women who partnered with rock musicians in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, a lot of the, uh, there are a lot of sad ends to some of these stories. Like Chrissy Finley actually ended up having been divorced from Ron. He promised her that none of this was sort of written in stone. He said, oh, you know, I'll always take care of you. They had a son together. And uh, as the years wore on, he claimed that he had made some bad investments. And in the end, he was giving Chrissy Finley something like, you know, he'd send her a 200-pound check here and there. From the Caribbean. Yeah, because he said he, he, he was out of money. And she ended up not, she didn't die destitute, but she was not living the high life, let's say. She was, she was reduced to sort of selling things in order to keep her, keep her home afloat. Well, that's sad. It is, and and a lot of uh, there a lot of people came to sad ends, um, and and like we touched on earlier, the the groupie culture 
there were a great many women that came into the rock business as young women who were were losing their virginity to Rod Stewart or whatever and became members of a of a uh, the traveling circus that was big time rock and roll of the 60s, 70s and 80s who then landed like real careers for themselves as artists, photographers, writers, agents for musicians and actors. But there are sad stories too. But in the case of Patty Boyd, it's maybe the maybe the nicest end. So in the early 90s, Patty met a, a real estate developer by the name of Ron Weston. And, you know, Ron is a handsome and suave kind of guy. Is he British or is he some California guy? Or He looks Californian. He's looking California but feeling Minnesota. No, he's he's British. Oh, okay. But he does. He looks like Ralph Lauren kind of. <laughs> and they, uh, out of the spotlight, she became a pretty well-respected photographer. And, of course, she has a lot of photos of, of these classic years too to draw on. But became a photographer in her own right. And she and uh, and Rod became like a like a, a very loving couple, and were together for twenty five years before, fairly recently, two thousand fifteen, they got married after after twenty five <laughs> years together, and uh, and by all accounts are like very happy together and and living a life kind of untarnished by all the 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 hard road. That got them there. I guess we know the answer now to like the Layla question. What will you do when you're lonely and nobody's waiting by your side? You just find a nice real estate agent with a Volvo. Right. You divorce your cokehead white nationalist guitar playing husband and uh, start a new life. (laughs) Meet somebody nice. That's nice to have a happy ending. And that concludes Patty Boyd, entry 148.DE2402. Certificate number 42401 in the Omnibus. Now, Futurelings, John and I have no groupies. We produce this time capsule in splendid isolation. Yes. Uh, so it's nice to have the support of a, of a robust community around us. No, no, wait. When you were at your fame peak, which we both know was only 20 minutes ago, did you not ever have... Uh, are you saying my 15 minutes are over? No, F- no, no. Five no. minutes ago? No, no, no. You're, <laughs> you're, you were right in the dead center of your 15 minutes. Uh, did you never have uh, the affection? Uh, did you not have like uh, someone at a distance idealizing you and sending you uh, scented leather- letters? Scented leathers? <laughs> scented leathers? <laughs> I mean, occasionally to this day on the internet, I'll see some young thing be like, Ken Jennings from Jeopardy can get it. And I'll be like, you know, what does that please, I don't, even wanna, I don't even want to see that. I'm not going to explain. Can get it? I'm not going to explain slang to you. Why John. has no one ever said can get it to me? I don't even know. They're, sa- they're saying it to others about you probably. Oh. Uh-huh. But I think while I was on, I mean, the, famously the Jeopardy demographic is so old that um, oh. it, would be, it would be very easy for me to run away from these women if, it's, if a Hard Day's Night scenario ever developed. I've seen this on, on airplanes when the, uh, when the uh, senior stewardess comes back and says, I love your work. <laughs> and then explains to the younger steward. It, it's true that it's always the, it's always yeah. the nice it's always the nice matronly one. Oh, so there's a song by Bow Wow called "Can Get It." <laughs> I like how you're researching uh, this. Oh wow, okay, I see. It's all about uh, it's all about being sexy times. 
The one about mm. so, so this is very upsetting to me that people are the young women are looking on game shows to see who they're setting their who sights on. Who can get it? Yeah, I'm happily married, ladies. Yeah, but there was kind of a, a, a kind of a dotty middle aged woman who was always sending me nice emails. Oh, you won again. Good job. And Mindy was always like, this woman's going to kill you. Like at one point she sends a collage where she's put her face and my face onto like other pictures. Oh, yeah. This woman's going to kill you. (laughs) And no, she showed up at a signing once and was perfectly like friendly. And I was like, oh, you sent the weird collages. Didn't kill you as far as you know. Has not yet murdered me. Mm -hmm. And I think think just emailed, like sent in an email the other day to be like, Oh, I saw your kids' books. I'm going to buy them for my grandkids or whatever. Nice. So it's it's a little more wholesome than the the deviants on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are a lot of deviants on there saying that you can get it. But speaking of social media, in addition to getting weirdly hashtag propositioned, we uphold all the ideals of the Omnibus Project, the importance of history, of heritage, of legacy. I shouldn't have said heritage. That's not less like an Eric Clapton thing. <laughs> Keeping Britain white, very important to us. No, not at all. But the uh, the ideals of the Omnibus Project are available to all at at Omnibus Project on every social media network, under the sun, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter and in John's case on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, we're available for feedback and suggestions at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, a couple of people have written recently to say they just discovered this show after uh, hearing us on, on different things, and now they're fans of the show. So that was Oh, nice. that's exciting. I like that. That was nice. Yeah. Thanks. Welcome, everybody. Welcome if you're new. The, what did I not say? You could send us physical mail yes. at Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. That's where John wants all your scented, flimsy things to go because he's not happy that I have so many groupies. Uh, wants a few of his own. Uh, uh, or you can uh, collaborate, commiserate, corroborate your fellow Omnibus listeners on our Facebook page. Uh, you can look for the Futurelings at Facebook and they're always having a good time. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, at a time when people uh, who were stalking Ken still used glue and construction paper to stalk him, uh, we have no idea how long our civilization, such as it is, survived. But we hope and pray that this catastrophe may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, like the recordings of Eric Clapton in the 70s, like the recording... The famous recording of Cocaine. Do you think that song, Eric Clapton's song, Cocaine, do you think it's about drugs? Hmm. When the feeling is gone and you want to ride on, Cocaine. What about the Lou Reed song, Heroin? Do you think that's about cocaine? No, it's about uh, female protagonists. (laughs) It's Uh, about The Razor Watching God by (laughs) Zora Neale Hurston, Lou Reed's favorite novel. This may be our final word. Let's hope it isn't. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry. In the omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.